Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me as always is my co-host and king of this podcasting frontier, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? I'm doing great, Andy. How are you doing? You know, I'm really swell. Hey, I had a great conversation pre-production with a fantastic historian. His name is Mark Watson. Um, And he's a history professor, retired from uh, Ball State University in in Indiana, and also served as a history professor at the Indiana Academy, uh, which is a gifted and talented academy for high school students. He's also a a known historical consult for independent films and documentaries. And he did a great deal of background work for us here to help us understand the historical accuracy of the film we're about to talk about. And I got to say, by Hollywood standards, it's pretty good. Oh, wow. That, that's yeah. good to know. So I here we go. That. Yeah. So we're going to talk about Davy Crockett, King of the World Frontier from 1954. And this is one of those cases, Andy, where I know almost nothing about this about this movie. So please fill me in with some key facts here, because I've come in, I've watched it, but but Beyond the song, which I think everybody knows, that that was what I came in with as prior knowledge. Yeah, if you don't know the song, Davy Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, um, I'm not going to sing it for you. But if you don't know that song, it's a key part of Americana in the 20th century. So I think that's pretty important. Well, I'll set the stage with some key facts here for you, Larry. Yeah, please. Um, in 1954, Walt Disney creates a television series called Walt Disney's Disneyland. To, and it's the the purpose of the show is to showcase and finance. I mean, I don't say this on the show, obviously, but it's it's really to showcase and finance the development of his new theme park. Maybe you've heard of it uh, in Anaheim. <laughs> uh, one of the park's main sections to this day, and also in Walt Disney World in Orlando, is called Frontierland, and a three episode series called Davy Crockett is created with Fess Parker in the title role. Now, it's pretty safe to say that no one really expected this little three-part miniseries that wasn't even shown on consecutive slots to be as culturally transformative as it was. Um, and the evidence for that is they kill off their protagonist in the final episode. So, Which shocked the <laughs> heck out of me. <laughs> well, I mean, he doesn't really die. He lives on and like, right? I guess. I, I mean, of. I mean, if you're going to tell me he's at the same farm that Bambi's mother is at in order to make me feel better, <laughs> Mufasa's there too, right? So is Old Yeller. Oh, right. great! But but then the series goes back and they create two more episodes, and those episodes are in, edited into Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, and Davy, the separate film Davy Crockett and the River Pirates. So those are shown on the big screen. So in 1834, David Crockett publishes a autobiography titled A Narrative of the Life of David Crockett of the State of Tennessee, which, you know, it's a big title. He he writes the piece in response to a satirical play from 1831 called The Lion of the West. Now, in this play, there's a thinly disguised protagonist, Colonel Nimrod Wildfire, And it's clearly modeled after Crockett. And it's also one of the first dramatic pieces uh, that's truly American that characterizes frontier people as sort of these wild buckskin clad comedians, right? And one of the lines from the play is, 
Let all the fellers in New York know I'm half horse, half alligator, a touch of the earthquake with a sprinkling of the steamboat. And if I ain't, I wish I may be shot, right? So that kind of half horse, half alligator, right? Well, this play experiences a revival in 1954 after it's discovered in the British Museum archives. So here it comes. And guess what, folks? It's not trademarked. <laughs> Right. Of course it's not. Of course (laughs) course it's not. not. Of course it's not. And so I, you know, the fact that Disney's using this, I mean, seems kind of interesting to me that this pops up and hey, it's free material, right? It's interesting material. It's about a real American hero. So the subject of Davy Crockett is projected onto the silver screen as early as 1909. Mostly, though, they're romance storylines where Crockett rescues his love from marrying a rival. So it has absolutely nothing to do other than they share the same name. Um, There is another movie in 1955 called The Last Command, which features the story of the Alamo siege with Jim Bowie as the protagonist, but with Davy providing a disappointing entrance. So instead of coming with a thousand man army as reinforcements, he arrives with 29 fighters. But still... Davy Crockett is in the American consciousness as a hero before Disney takes over the story, right? So after a Great Depression and a world war, right, the United States emerges in the 20th century as as the industrialized nation whose infrastructure is intact. And we have the 1950s that sees the emergence of a middle class, and those families have televisions, right? And those families are in places like Texas and Tennessee and throughout the Southeast. So as just as Davy Crockett saw potential for nation building in Texas, Disney sees television as a medium to start generating revenue for his interests. And all that said, Davy Crockett is this crazy surprise hit. There are kids and adults involved in this Crockett craze. It's like the first cosplay Everybody's got a coonskin cap. And, you know, Mark Watson said, um, and I took it down verbatim as I was talking to him because it was so good. He said, you know, middle America was awakened to the notion that we have genuine article American heroes. Robin Hood's a myth. How we understand fictional cowboys like the Lone Ranger and the Cisco Kid is also mythology. And these characters do precious little of what real cowboys do. But Davy Crockett's story has a genuine foundation And Disney takes real efforts to make Crockett's story as true as you can make something 100 years after the fact. You know, what was really interesting to me when I was watching this movie is I was really, as I was watching it, I kept thinking, this is such a movie for the greatest generation. Oh, 100 percent. We're we're creating a mythology. And I I don't I don't mean mythology in any pejorative term about about our our troops who went and died in World War Two. Uh, how, how the the honor and dignity of having served and 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 died in, in the war, and when we get to the section where we're in the Alamo, this is this is it for me. It was that it was we volunteered for service, knowing we would not live. Uh, we made that commitment, and we're going to honor that commitment. We're storming the beaches at Normandy, right? It's exactly, exactly the it. same That's thing. The parallel, yeah. yeah. That's the parallel there. And because because we are men of honor, mm-hmm. uh, we will go down. We will go down fighting. And that that probably resonates so strongly 1955. 
Right, right. Because people have a chance to, they've had a chance to sit with it and and really uh, digest this horror of, of the World War and really the Great Depression. And now all of a sudden they've got money and they've got little kids and there's a show and we can all dress up and play Davy Crockett. And there's a great song and we can all whistle it and sing it and the whole bit. So it really, I think, fills a void and helps people tell a story that maybe hadn't been told before. Fair enough. Uh, Should we get into story? Let's do it. So this is going to be a tricky one for us to break down a little bit, Andy, because obviously it is mini episodes that were stitched together to make a larger movie. And it very much feels like that. There's a very episodic nature to this movie. We have different sections of Davy Crockett's life. Um, and I think all things considered, they've done a great surgery on this, mm. bringing them together to make it feel like it's a movie, but mm. it's not going to neatly fall into our sections the way we, we uh, often want the movies to do. Right. I'm curious about why this movie starts where it starts, the Manishtana of it all, um, because it starts in an interesting place. It doesn't begin with Davy joining the army. Davy joined the army. He's a volunteer. He's not even at the camp, really. Right. Uh, we, we, people, people are searching for Davy Crockett. We find him uh, staring down a bear, which is, uh-huh. you know, arguably a great way to meet our protagonist, even though the action is happening happening off camera because we don't really want to watch a guy get mauled by a bear right. with you, <laughs> with you on all of that. <laughs> but it begins where Davy is kind of at a place where he's ready to temporarily go home from the army. And for me, that's a little baffling as a choice. I was wondering. I was wondering what you thought about the opening. It, it starts off maybe not where the action is. Well, I mean, it depends on what you think the action is. I mean, he's in the middle of a conflict, right? He's paid to scout. He's he's almost a government contractor in a sense, right? I mean, I mean, like he's in the army, but he doesn't want to kill or hurt anybody. Um, and we also get the feeling that he's not a, a man of means. He's not like a slaveholder. Um, He's a man of skill. He lives by his wits and this moral compass. And the other thing is he's not afraid to go against the grain. And we know all of that pretty quickly. So I think the Manishtana is is really there so that we know and establish pretty quickly the character of Crockett before and, and really more of exposition than anything else. It's it's just it's just we see him about to go on R and R is the right. thing for me. Uh, and then he does go on R&R. And then he comes then he comes back to our movie. Um, you know, right, and, for, and the con- there's conflict in that R&R, right? And they don't oh, want sure. him to go. You know, they, they he defies orders to do I it. Just, I think if we were making this movie today, we begin with the day he joins the army as opposed to his first day before his vacation from the army. And then when he comes back from the army, that's when the, that's when the story is going to really kick into high gear. Uh, Well, interestingly though, if, if a bunch of people had already been to world war II and they kind of know what it's all about, then joining the army isn't that interesting. So maybe going home for R and R 
that he wants to, that he defies orders to go home to his family. That does feel like a big conflict. I, I don't know. Basic training where there's a, where there's a crusty drill sergeant who's going, Crockett! Uh, <laughs> Right, I, right. I guess I guess we can see those scenes in other movies, but it, it was yeah. it was a little and, and surprising. Remember, yeah, yeah, you'll notice too. Like the soldiers are dressed as soldiers, the scouts mm-hmm. are dressed as scouts. So he's not a typical. He's atypical, and and, and yeah. that definitely reads. Uh, and the first thing we notice about him is that he's already disobeyed orders. He's not supposed to have gone to the other side of the creek. Uh, right. For hunting, they have to go there and and get him and bring him back. Um, when he goes on R&R, which he is owed, he is owed R&R. That was the agreement they came to. Uh, there is a bit where they try to force him to stop. Like, we're, we're start already at the beginning of this movie, he has mythological characteristics. Oh, yeah. He he's is, an unstoppable he cap- force, right? He's a capital M man, mm-hmm. even within the army. Yes. Even among other men. Right. Right. So I think that's probably why to establish him as sort of that man among men uh, kind of character. And then to soften him up by taking him home and showing them, you know, showing his family and how much he loves them and um, how important they are to him. I think that's the, the, the duality, I think, is really I have more to say about how important they are to him, but but we'll come back to that point. (laughs) We'll come back to that point a little bit later, I suppose. Sure, sure. Uh, So for me, when I'm trying to find the inciting incident of this movie, and of course, as I said earlier, this is three separate episodes, so there would Mm -hmm. be three inciting incidents. But trying to look at this as like a larger story, what is the thing that is the event in Davy Crockett's life that changes everything for him. It's hard for me to find one in the first section. The first section of the story uh, details Davy Crockett uh, being being called into service to hunt down Red Stick and mm-hmm. get him to surrender or or possibly kill him depending on how how things go, but to try to end right. the conflict between the army and, and Red Stick. Right. But for me, that isn't really the inciting incident of Davy Crockett's story. That's Davy doing a job. And it and it is for as this movie reads, I feel like that's still all exposition. We're seeing Agreed. what he does and we're seeing what he stands for. And we see that he's a man of honor. We see, to my surprise, that he prefers diplomacy to combat, which yeah. was not something I expected to see in this movie. Yes, yes. That, and that I don't, might. and I think, I think honestly, that is where I think uh, combat and might are are the way in which most of these Western films from the the 40s and 50s, you know, everything's settled in a gunfight. Um, Crockett's not afraid of a fight in this movie, but he's more interested in diplomacy, as you said. Yeah, it, violence is his last resort. Yeah, and like Goliath from Gargoyles, I respect the heck out of that. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, at, You know, it's not that he won't. It's right. he'd prefer not to. If there's, a, yeah. if there's a peaceful way to do it, he would do it that way. Right, uh, right. Love that about him. But I have trouble pinpointing the moment where I'm like, now we're seeing Davy's story. 
I think it's when Polly dies. I think it's when he gets the note that Polly dies and, uh, you know, and his kids are taken care of and, hey, don't worry about them. And he's like, all right, I'll take that job on as magistrate and I'll do the, you know. I mean, he actually, I'm, I'm mixing that up. He's magistrate actually before then. Yes. And maybe it's when, maybe it's the shooting match. Maybe when he's going against Mason, but it feels kind of like more of the same. Um, uh, so I'm going to pinpoint an inciting incident, and I don't know that I'm right. Uh, okay. I'll say it with conviction, like I okay. always do. <laughs> but for me, the inciting incident of this movie is when Davy learns uh, that the the natives have been displaced by Bigfoot. That there yes. was a deal made with the natives, mm. and this this thug has kicked them off their land in in violation of the contract that was signed between the United States and the native people. Yes, for me, that is the moment where Davy has a realization that the people he represents are not as honorable as he is necessarily. Now he should have had that realization a little bit sooner and we can talk about that a little bit, but, but that that's the part where I see him really registering that the thing that he said to red stick is that if you make a deal with the United States government, the United States government will honor it. Mm -hmm. And me and the audience is going, Red Stick, don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> right. But Davey Aww. believes that. He does. He and does. so he's, his worldview isn't challenged until he gets to this point where he sees someone completely disregarding this, this treaty that has been signed. Right. And I would say that's an inciting incident that arguably propels him forward. He was not going to be uh, the marshal. He was not going to enter into being politics, sheriff. Sure, and it sure. Changed his mind. It yeah. propels him into politics, mm-hmm. and it pushes him on a path where Davy Crockett was not willing to, or not necessarily willing. He was reluctant to go. He didn't right. want to be a politician. But when when they say to him, "Listen, if you don't go," Uh, if you're not our representative, this other guy who liked Bigfoot and is probably going to set him free is going to be our representative. Or this guy it's, who made a lot of money off these Indian land grabs, right? right? That's what he says. Yeah. So yeah, 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 exactly. And so it's hard to to say that's the inciting incident because I think it's exactly at the midpoint of this movie. Or or maybe... yeah. <laughs> But I mean, that's that's going to be but the that's nature where of the shift. That's where the shift happens, right? That's the story yeah. shifts there because Davy's taken off his rose-colored glasses about the United States. Right. He's still a patriot. He still loves his country. Right. I don't mean to imply. I don't mean to imply anything but that. But he right. there's a recognition that there are men who are not abiding by their word, which seems to be the thing that will trip Davy up again and again. Davy assumes men will. Yes. He assumes everybody does the right thing and they don't do the right thing. And it's, you know, profoundly disappointing to him. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to throw all of that stuff up as rising action. Uh, His encounter with Bigfoot is rising action. His going into Congress is rising action. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
I would even go so far as to say his leaving Congress is rising mm-hmm. action. Where would you say the movie reaches its climax? Oh, I think it's in the Alamo. I, I think, think it is. I think it's the Alamo fight. You know, it's it's because everything's been leading to this. Are are good people? Now, I don't necessarily agree with this premise. Okay, but it seems to be leading to this idea of are good men willing to die for something that is bigger than they are? Are they yeah. willing to die for independence? Are they willing to lay their lives on the line for this? Or are they just, you know, interested in steamrolling people and creating whatever? And, and I mean, you can argue that you can argue that uh, the Texans seeking independence were certainly doing their own steamrolling as well. But um, I think, yeah, I think this movie is kind of like what are you is really asking the dramatic question, you know, what are you willing to die for? Are you willing to die for your ideals? Right. And. I, I would I would argue with that. I would argue that's probably right. That's the conflict. What the sec you know, if the fort he was going to wasn't the Alamo, we mm-hmm. might have hope that this movie is going to end differently than we expected to do. But you've if you've had a little bit of US history, yeah. when Davy's given the chance, when Georgie's given the chance to leave to leave the Alamo and they don't, you just have to say we're either going to enter into an alternative universe here, or I kind of know this is not going to have a happy ending. So it right. is the climax. It is the place where uh, the stakes are the highest, and Davy pays the highest of those stakes. Right? Yeah, he, he does. does not survive the Alamo. Uh, what is tricky to me is I think the actual moment of climax, the actual moment of truth. There's two. There's two places in the Alamo. And I don't think it's about Davy's final decision to stay because there is no dramatic tension in whether Davy is going to stay or not. Mm-hmm. One piece of dramatic tension happens with Thimble Rig. Thimble Rig is this sort of like swindler. Mm-hmm. Uh, who he, he's got a theatrical sort of performance vibe, con artist vibe. Who, for whatever reason, has journeyed with Davy towards the Alamo. And there's a moment where they say, who's going to desert the Alamo and who's going to stay? And almost immediately, every single person in the Alamo crosses the line and says, hey, we're staying even though we know we're going to die. And Thimble Rig is reluctant to do it. Right. But then he crosses the line and he stays with them with no intention of deserting. Right. Uh, And that kind of feels like a climax, although it isn't about our protagonist. Uh, it well, but it kind of feels like it isn't about the protagonist. It kind of feels like it's Thimble Rig moves in a direction that Davy wants and wishes maybe his constituents had moved in. in. Yes, and he's, maybe he's wishes accepting... he could have taken Jackson and Norton too. You know, it's Davy's worldview. Yeah, about yeah. men being noble is what's being put to the test rather than a character. And this Thimble Rig character, who we suspect. You know, we see him trying to do some con artisty things to get more food and mm-hmm. uh, is not is not the is the greatest guy is is ennobled, is elevated by his exposure to Davy Crockett and is willing to put his life on the line just like just like all the others. Right. I mean, the offer becomes irresistible to him because it's a redemption for his character. The I other think. place where I might say a climax occurs is there is a falling out between Davy and his best friend, Georgie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there is a question of, Georgie leaves the Alamo looking for help. 
Uh, their, his relationship with Davy at that point has been fractured. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's mad at Davy for keeping secrets from him. Uh, he leaves, and there's a feeling like if Georgie doesn't come back, it's because Georgie's mad at Davy. Mm-hmm. And then Georgie does come back. And Davy's response is, he's upset Georgie came back. You damn fool. You were free. Mm-hmm. You would yeah. have lived. It's, it's, for me, that's, that is that the other climax. Like, yeah, that, that's where it feel it feels like it's got the most emotional tug for sure. Yeah. Because we're invested in Georgie Russell. We've been in, and Georgie's been invested in Davy since, you know, we saw him first, right? He's been in the movie since the beginning. Right, he's right, been right. he's been there the whole time, and if he deserts Davy, then we're deserting Davy, right? Mm-hmm. This is a lifelong friendship, and yeah. at the moment of the darkest moment of their friendship, their love for each other still comes through. Yeah, that's good stuff. I think so. The falling action in this movie. <laughs> well, I mean, Davy dies. Spoilers. Well, we, we think we think he dies. We don't know. I mean, we still see him swinging, right? They they just don't want to show him Andy. <laughs> Andy, he's dead. Oh, I know. I know. I mean, we don't see Bambi's mother get shot either, right. Andy. She's not okay. We just didn't we just didn't want to have to watch Davy fall. We want to see him right. fighting. We don't want to see him fall. But but he is he is donezo. Right. And and again, going back to that idea of men that we lost in World War II, which there were lots of them there this narrative is such that he died swing you know he died with his boots on he died swinging right yes and and i think that narrative is one that the united states resonates because i think they need it i think americans especially the common man who sent their kid who their kid was conscripted right and their son and sons didn't and fathers didn't come home i think that's something they really need so i think that again i think that kind of leads to the popularity of this, you know, especially now there's a cold war. Yay. Hooray. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, and there's been Korea too. I mean, this is, you know, this is just, gosh, golly. (laughs) Uh, Time time will always bring us more conflicts, won't it? Oh yes. Yeah. Always. So Larry, I have a question for you. And I was, as I was watching this, I thought about it. Like how accurate do we as screenwriters have to be, um, in telling a historical story, um, are, are there pitfalls in, in romanticizing a story? Are there pitfalls in being really dead on accurate? Well, so the, let's that's three separate questions. I'll start Those with the first se- one. The first Thank one you. is how accurate do we have to be as screenwriters in telling a story rooted in history? And my answer to that is not at all. Uh, you know, we're an educational podcast. We, right. we have an obligation to educate when we when we would do this analysis. But from the perspective of a movie, unless a movie's goal is to educate, uh, why not have Abraham Lincoln kill werewolves? It doesn't matter if it makes a good movie. It doesn't matter whether it happened from a historical sense. So you're from thinking a, more like thematic sense, right? Sure. Like, like if you've got a good story... No one really cares. Yeah. The thing that I do think is important um, is the cultural representation of what you're yes. showing, right? Yes, yes. Uh, and I I have to tell you, Andy, I, 
was very worried about this movie because I knew there was going to be representatives of indigenous peoples right. uh, in this movie. And I knew that it was not going to be up to 21st century standards. Right. And, it's, and it is not. It, it is, is not. not. If this movie were to come out today, we would all immediately recognize it as culturally insensitive, um, romanticizing things or or stereotyping things, buying into things that simply aren't true. And, and we wouldn't go see it. I mean, right. that's... I hesitate to say this, and I'm hoping you'll agree with me. Okay. By the standards of 1955, not today's standards, but right. then, this is a fairly progressive movie. I, I do of, agree. I do agree with you. I think we lose it in the third act. We do lose it in the third act. I think act. Thimble Rig and the uh, I'm like, really? We were doing so great. They are trying more than we expect 1955 to try. Oh, I yeah. I think that's yeah. fair. Whether now I don't necessarily think they succeed. I think you're right. The third act in particular is problematic. I'm sure there are, are just so many things that are I would cringe at I, by yeah. today's standards. I do still cringe at it. Uh, but this is this is not Peter Pan where the representative no. was representation. There was no attempt at nuance. It was all caricature. It is yeah. a step above that. This is better than Song of the South is for representation where they're... Oh, for sure. Where they're... Oh, boy. I mean, let's not even... I opened that door. Let me close it again because I don't <laughs> want to go do. there. <laughs> but but that's the place when we're talking about a story rooted in history where mm -hmm. we really want to capture the voices of people who are whose stories don't didn't get told mm -hmm. or weren't told properly or were told from a... Uh, a slanted perspective. I think. I think those are the things that are important. Um, yeah. I mean, so that for me is there. Is there are there pitfalls in romanticizing a story? Absolutely. I mean, uh, there's problems with being too dead on accurate. Because if it if you go one way, uh, look. If you paint, which I was worried this movie was going to do, if you paint the conflict between the United States government and the indigenous peoples as the, it is all of the conflict is entirely the fault of the indigenous people, and and this movie does not do that. No, but if not, at but all. I was worried that they would, and if they did that, I don't know that I could have made it through. Right, you know, um, and by the by the same token, do I want to see all of the brutality, all of the betrayal, all of the heartache? It's still a movie. I still want right. to be entertained. So so it does need to somewhat, on a project-by-project project basis. I mean, that's where I land on this. What do you think, Andy? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that project-by-project project is important. Um, I also think it's important to, you know, share some of this heartache, especially because not every movie is just there to make me feel good. No. Um, I, I think um, that said, I, and I... I really think there's been a disservice in um, in cinema, especially when it comes to Native Americans and their stories, uh, because they're always told from a white perspective. Almost always, yeah. That said, like this project really did talk about the Cherokee. They did consult the Cherokee Nation, and they did um, 
try they tried again i and 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 probably in ways that like other if you compare again if you compare it to other things from the period which are just gaggingly awful um this this is i mean it's they're trying you know you know i struggled with this the entire movie and the movie mercifully didn't didn't make me feel bad for watching it the entire time Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm going to, I just need to say this. If, if you watch this movie and you struggled with this conflict too, and you don't know where to, to, to land on it, I think that's right. I think we're, I think we should have complicated feelings about this movie. Yes. Um, and certainly as someone who, who is not an indigenous person, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm not the person to make the final decision on whether this is okay or or not okay right but we should be feeling the struggle of of navigating that space and i i think that's what we're talking about here well and as a historical figure i think crockett himself as a person as a human struggled with that same thing and we see that where to draw the line yeah like he draws the line right at annihilating native people um he, he he's not okay with that and he's he, I mean, to, to the point where he defies the president of the United States or the future president of the United States. Um, he does. Um, but he's born into a society where there are slaveholding gentry. Right? right. And if you're not slaveholding gentry, you're a poor guy. Well, it's hard to compete. And there is no free market when you have enslaved people doing all the work. Um He's really in trying to live. He's got to live by his wits, right? To my mind, uh, what I would have loved to have seen was sort of uh, a dances with wolves moment mm-hmm. for Davy, where he recognizes he has more in common with the native people than he does with the United States people. Oh, 100%. His values are more their values. Yes. I mean, he and Charlie Two Shirts. Would have been great neighbors. Yeah. And probably would have been lifelong friends. And maybe Charlie would have even joined he and Georgie as part of the part of their buddies. And maybe their wives would have been friends. I mean, you can see that, you know, definitely there. Um, I just wish they'd been more explicit about it. And yet and yet it's 1955 standards. So there's only so explicit they can be. Well, and Crockett leaves. What is he leaves Congress? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> like in real life, he leaves Congress because these treaties are being trashed. He sacrifices so, his career. He's arguably told, although I don't believe it for a second, that he might be the next president of the United States if he keeps his mouth shut about this. Although I think that's a lie. I, I don't think that's true. Um, but, but no, I think that's an a, appeal to his ego, right? Yes. But he yeah. makes a sacrifice of his political career in mm-hmm. service to this to this belief. You know, one of the things Mark Watson said was that Crockett's constituents don't really live by his live and let live philosophy, right? They want expansion at the cost of human life and moral judgment. And so here's this deeply disillusioned je- her person who's been dragged on these, you know, let's go talk, tell stories and yarns and have rallies or whatever. And he comes back and he finds out that they got him out of the way right so that they could do their dirty work 
because he took them at their word. He took them at their word. And this is a, I mean, so he is deeply disillusioned. And the line that he delivers when he leaves Congress, I mean, is very famous. He's like, you know, you can all go to hell and I'll go to Texas, meaning not necessarily go to hell like I'm banning you to hell, but you are on the road to hell. You are yep. you are at the gates of perdition and you all can go that direction. And if that's the direction the country's on, I am uninterested in continuing down that path. Yeah, I'm with you. And so and so I I mean that complication I think could be punched up a lot in this movie. I, I think that's how we rewrite it. I mean yeah, we, yeah. we strengthen that through line throughout. Yeah. Um, and what's what's really interesting to me is how much of the character we'll, we'll get to it when we get into character. Are we and not in character? <laughs> no, no. But when we when yeah. we pull when we pull these three movies together, I uh-huh. do think there's a consistent approach to character that reads as a through line throughout this movie, even mm-hmm. if it wasn't intended that way. Well, let's jump in. Let's talk about Davy Crockett. Let's talk about Fess Parker. Um, I think he's the all-American moral protagonist. 100%. Right? He's Captain um, America. He he's is. Steve Rogers. He is. He's 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 the guy. And I think where he where he takes a turn is he really he is respectful of Jackson. He believes they have a relationship. Um, and he believes Nor- he and Norton have a relationship. But in reality, you know, he believes that people can change. And they can. Um, yeah. But but he doesn't see he, he's sort of naive. Like like because he because he makes peace and he defends the powerless and he apologizes when he's wrong, right? Those he expects other people to do that and they just don't. For me, the telling part about the first episode where he's working with the army is we have this section where he has been Granted, he is supposed to have R&R, mm-hmm. and Norton does refuses to grant it, and Crockett's like, this was the deal. I would come for 60 days. I've come for 60 days. It's been more than 60 days. Gotta yeah. go home to my wife and kids. I'll come back. You know I'll come back. I'm Davy Crockett, and I said I'll come back. Right, and right. Norton's response is, you cannot go. I don't care what we agree to. We need you here now mm-hmm. to the point where he pulls a cannon on Davy. <laughs> right. And Davy calls his bluff. Although I don't know that Norton was bluffing. I think Davy no, stares I don't think down he was either. I think Davy stares down Norton the way that he's been staring down raccoons and bears. Right. And, and is able to walk on by. But for me, that Davy doesn't recognize that the person he's serving under does not keep his word. Yeah. And when he goes to Red Stick and says, listen, make a deal with the U.S. government, make a treaty, all the other tribes are doing it. We're men of our word. I'm Davy Crockett. I'm a man of my word. When he's saying all of this stuff, and I'm at home knowing historically how this is going to play out, yeah. I don't think Davy's lying. But I think I think... This is the story of a person who becomes disillusioned when he, he perceives his country as having a moral code and not and everyone in that country has it. Yeah, it just doesn't, right? Because ultimately the lust for land and power is going to win out and money is going to win out over ideals. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
And, and again, I think when you're writing a historical character, I think getting into the conflict inside is so important. And putting these complications on the screen is just crazy important. Agreed. So. Agreed. So, I mean, that's the through line for him. And yeah. uh, I mean, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. It's a good through line. I do feel, as I felt with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea a bit, that I'm watching Davy from the outside. Yeah. More than I'm seeing things through his eyes specifically. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure why that is. I feel probably more rooted to Georgie than I do to Davy. Right. Well, and part of that, I think, is the difference between these two actors. Um, I, I, I'm going to put my director hat on for just a second. But oh, please. Fe- Fess Parker is pretty flat um, as a character. I mean, he's he's a good fighter and he's good with his body in terms of a fight scene. But he's pretty flat. And the if you look at him and just those scenes with him, there's not a lot of like, there's not a lot of like selling it. No Buddy Epson, Buddy Epson absolutely sells it. And it, I mean, Buddy is uh, is trained as a dancer. His body moves uh, as Georgie Russell. Um, he's, a, you know, he is functioning as the the man on the arc that punches up. Uh, I mean, he he punches up Parker straight man, really. Uh, Georgie's the funny guy. He's always, you know, he's always got something going on. He's yes. kind of tricky and funny. Um, he sings and dances, but his the way his body moves in the in in the on the screen um, leads us to and 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 the fact that Georgie trusts Davy gives uh, Fess Parker's performance a lot more umph. Yeah, and I I think I think in that way, Georgie is our our point of view for most yeah. of the movie. Yeah, and and he almost feels like a redundant character. Except you're right; he's be, he's bringing the human side of things to this story when he's juxtaposed with the mythological figure that Davy is. Georgie is more upset when Polly dies than Fess Parker is. I don't know that that's true. Uh, watch the watch their facial. Go back and watch their facial expressions again. Watch the emotion. It's all over Georgie Russell's face. It is. Fess, Fess is kind of. It is. Kinda, yeah. Uh, and look, look, I, ha- I want to talk about that scene a little bit more when we get to oh, talking sure, sure, about sure. Polly. But sure. but I I think it's implied I think it's implied that Davy's crying on the inside and he he doesn't have the where he doesn't have the ability to to let it out because that's the greatest generation for you men yeah, men they don't cry uh, stiff stiff upper lip and all of that give me some uh, time by myself right <laughs> exactly maybe he goes off to the woods and he sheds a single solitary tear uh but but that grief is still there he's just not a man who will express his grief Oh, he writes a poem about it. And that poem becomes, interestingly enough, becomes uh, part of the farewell song that is that is penned by Davy Crockett that George Bruns sits to music. Oh, so, wow. I didn't yeah, know that, that either. Farewell to the Mountains. Yeah, that's absolutely from a poem that Davy Crockett crafted. So when he leaves Tennessee, that is absolutely true. All right, Red Stick, Pat Hogan. Um, as I mentioned, uh, he's a member of the United Tribe. Um, what's interesting to me with his character is how he just doesn't seem like he's going to listen to any kind of reason at all. And Davey's able to turn it. He is. Um, listen, I, I cannot watch one of these movies 
and not root for the for the indigenous people. Oh, one hundred percent. I I don't know that the audience would have been there uh, when this movie happened, but right. um, but that that's that's where I'm positioned as a viewer here. What I think was interesting is they very much made it clear that Red Stick is an individual within his within his people, and the things that he says and does don't necessarily speak to what his people think or speak. Uh, he's in a position of authority. There are people right. who are deferring to him. Uh, but but it isn't it isn't presented in a sort of way of like every every native person is as prone to violence as Red Stick is. Right, right, right. And I think that is um that's something that I think especially it's nuanced and I'm not sure that people are going to get it. Uh, it, I think it's going to get lost in the cacophony of 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 how native native people are treated, but it is a nuanced look. And I, it's certainly one I appreciate. Um, Tobias Norton, David, or or, sorry, William Bakewell. um, He is, gosh, guy was in movies from 1923 to 1975. Um, If you, spend any time watching classic movies, you'll see him pop up. He's got, he's been in hundreds of films. Um, I love the character of Norton because he's so terrible. <laughs> he is terrible. He's, he's, um, he, he reminds me, I, I'm not quite sure why he reminded me of this, but, but um, he's a politician, even when he's in the army, he's more, co- he's more concerned with how he's viewed than he is concerned about the lives of his men. He is 100%. he is the opposite of Davy Crockett. I would go so far as to say he's the antagonist of this movie. Oh yeah, 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 one hundred percent. He's the antagonist. Yeah, because he's a man that Davy can't fight. Right, and he's a man that Davy can't turn. Right, even Red St- even Red Stick is as awful as he is. Right, in this movie, Davy has the ability to like reason with him and and to appeal to his greater greater good. Uh, Norton doesn't have a greater good. No, Norton is Norton is always looking towards the next political project. Norton will lie to get his way. He'll turn on his word. His word means nothing. He right. can be charming when he wants to be charming, right. but but he is he is a dissembler, and he represents again a composite of characters who employed Crockett and company as scouts. And again, like I just think this the idea of condensing characters can really help in a historical, particularly if there are multiple characters that are providing essentially the same kind of conflict. And, right? and Norton's uh, Norton's power over Davy is that Davy believes the best in everyone. Yes. Believes the best in Norton. It's Georgie who sees through Norton. Yeah. Georgie yeah. is the one who's like, Davy, you're fooled. And Davy's like, well, he told me he wanted me to do this. And Georgie's like, right. sure. That's what he told you. Here's what he actually did. And Davey's like, huh? You mean what somebody says isn't what they might do? Which is a great lesson for young people. um, That not every, not every, not everybody tells the truth. Um, So Polly Crockett. So Helene Stanley, I don't know if you knew this, but she was the live action model for 101 Dalmatians and Sleeping Beauty and also Anastasia Tremaine in Cinderella. I did not know that. Yes. I, and she, she does a lot of Disney projects, too. Uh, so. I could have stood to see a lot more of her in yes. this movie. Yes, that's my she one is, big, yeah. 
charming and feisty. Yep. And um, flirtatious mm-hmm. and like loving. Like there's there's I, she she lights up the screen. Yeah. For those forty five seconds <laughs> to a minute of of time. Right. I I wonder what she's doing in this movie though, Andy. Well, I I think she's got it. I think she's got to show what she I think she's got to show us uh what Davy's fighting for. It's not just that he's fighting. He's fighting for something and the, what he's fighting for is his family. Is he though? Well, I mean, you say I mean, a court in 1830 standards probably. Um, so, so here, here's where I'm going to take issue with, with Mr. Crockett, (laughs) which is the moment I needed him to have in this movie was a recognition that with all of the things that he did, he sacrificed his family for his country. Yeah. And that, that is not a small thing. That's everything. Yep. Right. He gave up everything and he gave it away as it without the understanding, I think, that it wouldn't be there for him when he came back to it. Yeah. And I mean, he says, you know, he tells her, be sure I'm right and then I'll go ahead. Right. He's not right. He's not right. The second part of this begins with with him sit with them in song telling us he got bored of where he was. Mm-hmm. He wanted to go someplace where there would be new challenges. So yeah. he went looking for a place to move his family so he could face new challenges. I have to say, that's not <laughs> that's not a plus parenting and it's no. not a plus partnering. No. His wife and children were happy where they were. Right. He was restless. And because he was restless, he wasn't there for them when they needed him most. And the movie doesn't want us to get hung up on it. I feel like when I saw the moment happen where where Georgie's like, you know, Polly died. They buried her. Don't go back for the kids. Your sister's raising them. They don't even they're fine. Everything's fine. You don't. It it was almost like, oh, are they going to introduce a new romance for Davy in the second half of this? Well, what's not what's not told in the story is Crockett did remarry, right? And it seemed, and I think he was, I think they were happy. It was a widow, and and she had kids, and he had kids. It was like, hey, let's all you know be one thing again. And so he kind of has this Brady Bunch thing happening. But I, he, when he leaves for Texas, he leaves them too. He has no. So there is this sort of um, fed upness with civilization and life and all of it that, yeah, it's, I, I just need this to be said. Yeah. Movies should have women in them. Unless yes. the point, unless the point of the, of the movie is some sort of premise, like all of the women in the world have disappeared and society is breaking down. Like, well, and, and so in the 1950s, too, you have that very much that, you know, hey, there's a dinner party and all the women are going to the kitchen and all the men are going in the living room and smoking cigars, right? And so if we're making a movie for little boys, we've got to, you know, we'll have token women and here they are, but, you know, we don't, they're not really needed. And so uh, that's the, the, the only female yeah. character in this movie is dead halfway through. And right. and she didn't have a lot of time in the movie to begin with. Right, right, right. So... 
Uh, Andrew Jackson, Basil Rusdale. Uh, first film he was in was the Marx Brothers from the the Coconuts from 1920. Oh wow! He plays, he plays uh, protect, Detective Hennessy. So he's got a long and varied career in uh, radio and TV. Um, I think what's interesting about his character is kind of the this theme that you know even the president can get things wrong. I was so worried this was going to be about. Um, glorifying Andrew Andrew Jackson's contribution to history without showing the the dark side aspects of it that we're familiar with. Uh, but I was very much pleased that they they talked about him as somebody who wanted to expand, who was not particularly on, I mean I mean there are so many things about Jackson's presidency that people still to this day will say he, his his presidency was one of the darkest uh, chapters in in history. Yeah, right. I mean, if you look at Jackson as an individual and the way he treats his wife and the way you know he loves women and children around him. I think it's pretty noble. Um, I mean, he's an adoptive dad, and he you know he does. But man, outside of that, the dude has no redemptive qualities. Right. None. And I was worried the movie was going to try to portray him as having so much being a better person yeah. than maybe the history books tell us. And I'm glad that it's just we're seeing him through Davy's eyes. Davy sees him as the best version of himself because Davy sees everyone as the best version of himself. But Davy learns. Yeah, what I wish had happened with was I, I really wish there had been a showdown with Davy and Andrew Jackson. But there, you know, we get the padding of Norton. Um, but it's it's clearly Andrew Jackson pulling the strings to distract Americans with Davy Crockett, so they won't notice all these broken treaties. Exactly right. So it's all a show. All right, Bigfoot Mason, Mike Mazursky. He was a six-five pro football and basketball player. Um, oh my gosh! Yeah, for, and and I think a Ukrainian immigrant too, or at least the first, first maybe second generation Ukrainian. Um, he is kind of a interesting character because, as we said earlier, um, he represents the people that are not good. <laughs> well, I mean, he's a foil. You know, I said that Norton is a foil for Davy, and I think that yeah. that's true. Norton is the opposite of what a man should be by Davy's right. moral compass. Right. Bigfoot has a lot of the same qualities that Davy has. They're both yeah. excellent shots. They both they both exist out in the wild. They both they both like, you know, like they're they're men who are rugged, who can exist out in the wilderness and make something of themselves. Sure. But Bigfoot is Davy without honor. That that is the thing. He's what Davy would be without the moral qualities. The yep. the on paper, the two men are the same, but the mm -hmm. spirits animating them are so different that that it becomes the dark he's the he's a dark mirror to davy too i think yeah yeah he's i mean he is who davy could be if he only cared about money how um, much of a robin hood scene is the shooting contest between the two of them i oh, felt like so we great. were in nottingham when 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 davy yeah. shoots the bullet right on top of the other bullet i was uh -huh. like i was like whoa guys are, we're getting our myths uh, a little crossed here <laughs> well i mean they're they're he he i mean Crockett is known as a sharpshooter. Um, 
I mean, that's uh, to this day, Davy Crockett is known as for his his rifle skills uh, and oh, sure. ability. I, I'm, not, so, I'm not saying I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just yeah. I'm just saying that scene is lifted from the mythology of Robin Hood. Oh, 100 percent anywhere. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's a fun scene I, still. I mean, and, and, and Pete Crockett and really those Tennessee volunteers, but but mostly Davy Crockett. Uh, according to Mr. Watson, uh, you know, the really sets the standard for American marksmanship with a long gun rifle. He sets it. I mean, that, so so the fact that they they nod to that is really interesting. And again, um, you know, that Davies using his skills to win beef as opposed to, uh, you know, <laughs> hurting other people is kind of a kind of a nice thing. All right. Thimble rig. Hans Conried, who is the voice of George Darling and Captain Hook and Peter Pan. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know what he's doing in this movie because he, he is a late addition. Well, so okay, so according to the autobiography of Davy Crockett, and then the work of a, there's a historian named John Abbott. There really was a juggler that Davy encounters on his way to Texas, and one of his games was a hat with thimbles on the crown of his hat. And he and Davy are on the riverboat and they have this conversation and the gambler expresses remorse at his bad life. And Davy tells him it's never too late to become honest. And he tells him to accompany me to Texas, cut aloof your degrading habits and associates here and in fighting for the freedom of the Texans, regain your own. Now, it feels like projection, right? I mean, Crockett wasn't free in Washington. He was a puppet and a spectacle. Sure. And probably wanted to cut himself loose and, and was disappointed with his constituents or whatever. But it's interesting that this gambler, I mean, the juggler goes with him. Yeah. And so, and and does, and, and follows him all the way there. So it's, I, I think, but again, his, 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 it's another sort of Bigfoot Mason character um, in that this is who Davy could be going to Texas. Right, but he no, could just... I mean, for me, this is this is the proof for Davy that Davy is right. He has yeah. two people in which he proves that he's right. The scout that he rescues uh-huh. uh, becomes becomes a lifelong friend, or or for a companion for the rest of his days. And Thimble Rig also is transformed by this by this nobility of spirit, this this brotherhood of man uh, philosophy that Davy espouses. Right, uh, there has. They're his triumphs. Uh, from this movie's perspective, Georgie also, all three of them, because they know Davy, get elevated into the mythology of great men, even if some of them didn't have the right ingredients at the beginning. So given Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, Davy Crockett and the River Pirates, and 2004's The Alamo, which was created under the Touchstone brand, um... What movie or untold, uh, untold historical story deserves to be made about the source material? Ooh, okay. So we're talking pitch time. Is we're that what talking we're talking? Pitch about? time. We're in pitch time. Yeah. Uh, all right. At the at the risk at the risk of stealing your pitch. And now go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I, d- I doubt you will. Okay. So <laughs> I'm thinking we don't really know that Polly Crockett died. There's a letter that gets sent to Davy, which he can't read, which Georgie reads aloud to him. Mm -hmm. But I think Polly Crockett 
faked her death. She was tired of being left at home alone to not have adventures. And you she did not steal my pitch. Okay, good. And she goes out to have her own adventures. But here's the key thing. Mm-hmm. Like part of this is about her anger at Davy, but like she's Polly Crockett and and she's not going to change her name and that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. the end of the movie is she hears Davy's at the Alamo uh, and she's she hears that he may have died there and in fact did die there. And she goes to the Alamo and mm-hmm. she gets closure with Davy at that point. But that's also where she retires the Crockett name and takes a name of her own. Hmm. How do you like that, Andy? I do like it. I like it a lot, actually. I like Polly a lot. Um, and again, I think she needed more screen time because she's... She's she off is, having her own adventures. It, I don't even know that the note said that. Maybe Georgie was just lying. <laughs> Maybe the note said, Georgie, cry here. Tell him He's Tell like, him I'm dying. But uh, <laughs> you were a better kisser than he ever was. That's awesome. So I got really fired up after reading the Crockett's uh, autobiography. Um, I think he deserves another treatment uh, as a tragic American hero with fewer quips and cliches and just more meat. There's a lot of meat on the bone there that got left. Uh, His childhood trauma is particularly intriguing. And I think it answers a whole lot of questions as to why he just picks up and leaves. Uh, when he says, I'm going to Texas, and six weeks later, no one else ever hears from him again, like he goes to Texas and leaves it all. Um, and and I think it's from that treatment, I I think, I and, and again, his dealings with the Cherokee and Comanche Nations are really interesting, especially his inspiration that he gets from the Comanche Nation. Um, I think all of that's really important. And I think it's worth exploring. And and again, like you said, it's worth telling the story from his point of view as opposed to this sort of third person point of view. I really want to see things from his. I really want to see him struggle. And I, I think I think he deserves that. Good. Yeah, I think that's the crucial thing. As a protagonist, we we never see him struggle. Yeah. And and that's because he's a myth, more more myth than man. But we need to see him struggle more. And I yeah, think I, th- I think you're right. That's something we need. I think I want him to be more man than myth, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I think, it would, I think you're I think right. It would be helpful. Well, what are we doing next week? Next week, Andy, we are doing Dumbo. Yay, Dumbo. Well, Dumbo, I love the ride at Disney. It's my favorite. Uh, Is it? Elephant. Yes. It's, I, I, because when I was a kid, I loved it because I got to drive. And every time I get in... Oh, uh, my, my my kids know that mom's got to drive. So <laughs> see the flying carpets, I think, outdo the the, the elephants at this point. But well, uh, I, they do. But for nostalgia's sake, I'm I'm all into the flying elephants. So. Fair enough. Well, hey, if you like what you're hearing, will you do us a favor and share this podcast with another Disney or classic movie fan? And would you please check out our Once Upon a Disney Facebook page? Tweet us at, at Andy Redwine or at Larry Brenner 6 or drop us a line in our mailbag at Once Upon a Disney Podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, see you real soon. See you real soon. <laughs> <laughs>